Hi everyone, this is Yin, and welcome to Growth and Failure. This show highlights extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up. I'll have conversations with a wide range of profiles from entrepreneurs and athletes, investors to educators, you name it. I love hearing people's different journeys. For me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow come from the struggle, the pain, the defeat. And I hope hearing these stories inspire you to not fear that messy middle or failure, but rather motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. For more information, please visit growthandfailure.com for more updates. And please write a review if you can. They really do help other people find this show. Thanks for listening. When I first started the show, I wrote down a list of people that really inspire me and motivate me to get better every day. And Shabnam was one of the first people I thought of. She is the first female dean that the University of San Francisco has had, as well as the first person of color to be dean for the school. And in a few weeks, she'll be visiting Nepal because the government invited her to give a keynote speech addressing higher education, which is extraordinary on its own. I don't know many people who get contacted by the government to speak, but particularly significant because Shabnam is the first person from Nepal, male or female, to be dean of any university in the U.S. Growing up in Kathmandu, she had a unique upbringing, raised by a Nepalese father and an Iranian mother. Both focused very early on in helping others with education, in a country where access to information was difficult. Her journey took her to Mount Holyoke, where her academic pursuit in education formally began, and continued west at UC Berkeley, where she obtained her Ph.D., and for over 20 years, Shabnam has devoted her life to assessing the systems of education, dissecting how they affect our thoughts, our way of life, and our application of higher education, which is huge interest of mine because I have young kids and I question the value of that today and also in 10 and 20 years. And you'll also hear about her mother passing away when she was just 10 years old. Her dad raised her and her brother to think of others and to be mindful of life significance and purpose in connecting and helping others, which is certainly very clear when you meet her. And despite a position of great responsibility and influence, Shabnam retains the same sense of humility from her upbringing in Nepal with this deep focus on elevating education to the masses. You'll hear about the struggles and the failures from the adversity in Nepal to her first interview at an advertising agency where she failed pretty miserably to being called too nice to be a dean. And what I love about Shabnam isn't all of her success, which is certainly inspiring on its own, but her relentless hunger to do more and to help others. I have found Shabnam to be an inspiring teacher in more ways than one, and I know you'll enjoy hearing her story. Hi, Shabnam. Welcome to the show, and thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Yin, for having me. Before we begin hearing more about your path to being a dean at the University of San Francisco, can we hear about your story of where it all began? Where did you grow up? My journey began in Kathmandu, Nepal, a small country sandwiched between India and China, my father is from Nepal and my mother was Iranian. I was born there and grew up bicultural in Nepal. And what were your parents like? My mom was one of these kind of social change fighters from the very beginning. She left Iran when she was 17 years old, partly motivated by kind of a desire to get away from the deep patriarchal system. She grew up believing in the equality of men and women. My grandmother used to tell me that she was always very disturbed by the fact that the society was so not that <laughs> and so patriarchal. And so when she was 17, she was motivated all by herself to just pick up and leave and travel to the Philippines, actually, at the time, to teach at a school there outside of Manila. And so she was just one of these people who, from the beginning, kind of believed in social change. She believed in social transformation. She was very much motivated by her beliefs and her faith. And she literally took a leap of faith in traveling to the Philippines and serving as a teacher there for a number of years before she picked up and went to India to pursue a degree in mass communications and media at the Indian Institute. And when she entered that university, she met my father. And my father had come from Nepal 
My father describes himself as a very motivated student. And in Nepal at the time, if you were a student who did well in school, you were expected to go into the sciences. Uh, and if you didn't, you went into humanities or the art. So it was very much stratified. And my father talks about going to university in Nepal, studying science and aspiring to be a doctor or <laughs> going into medicine, but deciding as he was studying that that was actually not his passion. And when he saw this opportunity in India, at this Indian Institute for Mass Communications, he thought, wow, that's really where I want to get some training is in really thinking about how information and communications can be used to advance democracy, essentially. So I don't think his family was very thrilled about him switching careers and going to India to pursue this degree. But going there also meant that my parents were able to meet and shortly after decided to get married in India and then moved to Nepal. So how long were they in India before they moved back? They were in India for about a year, I think, a year or a year and a half, something like that. And once they got married, they moved back to Nepal, which was, you know, at the time, a really bold move. Nepal at the time especially was very stratified along caste and quite homogenous and people believe that you marry within your caste and you marry another Nepali at the very least <laughs> and so for my father to meet someone from a different country a different background different nationality and then decide to get married and move back to Nepal was a really bold move that I think shook up the status quo a little bit but at the same time I think my my father's side of the family, they were open enough to be able to embrace my mom and to give my mom a lot of credit. She really took on Nepali culture and language and essentially adapted and became a part of the family there. And so they started their new life in Kathmandu, Nepal, where my father continued to work in mass media and communications. He did everything from being a reporter for the BBC for Nepal, but also South Asia, to then leading the national newspaper as editor-in-chief and working very briefly for a UN organization and then coming to this realization that his real passion was in working at the grassroots in really figuring out how to bring information to people. Because in Nepal specifically, the literacy rates were very low at the time. So reading and writing were even safe for those who had the opportunity to get an education. So you can imagine that newspapers and radio and these things weren't even developed enough to get to the masses. So people majority of people in Nepal didn't have access to what's going on in the world. What should we be aware of? Like, how do we actually access and process information? This was all very new. And my dad worked hard at the grassroots by collaborating with communities and so on to create new opportunities, like community radio stations and community newspapers and things like that's that. That's incredible. It sounds like he's so inspiring, but just an altruistic person to try to just help people gain information for just the country. Yes. What did your mom do with her degree in Nepal? Yeah. So my mom, instead of pursuing a career in journalism, actually went back to education. She taught at a school in Nepal for a number of years and then decided to start her own school. Of course, because <laughs> it seems like your parents are, you know, complete overachievers. Yeah, and I think it came from a place of also thinking about the context of Nepal, the needs of the people, and the fact that people who had had the option of sending their kids to private schools or there was an American school and a British school that followed an international curriculum and so many people who are wealthy in the country would send their kids to those schools. And for the rest of us, uh, the options were really limited. So there were a few Catholic schools at the time. I went to a girls' Catholic school that were known to offer kind of a solid educational foundation. 
But the government schools at the time were really for the masses and and weren't necessarily the types of schools that had offered a really good education to people. What kind of school did your mom open? It started off being K through five. So it was elementary only at the beginning. And then it went all the way to 10, which was in Nepal, kind of the grade to which you'd go. And then you'd do plus two. Before university. Before university. So it's a slightly different model. Her goal was to open a school that was accessible to more people, but that would also offer a progressive education where students would be taught to think creatively and to think critically and to think for themselves, which sounds so funny given that that's kind of the how we think about education now. But at the time in Nepal, it was so novel. Did you and your brother go to that school? We didn't, actually. I think it was because my mom really wanted us to have our own experience in some ways and we were at this I was at this girls school and my brother was at the boys school. What was your path through middle school high school before university? So I went through Catholic school essentially St. Mary's school which if you meet Nepalese my generation most of them went to St. Mary's. And then at around ninth grade my stepmom so we're skipping some life stories here but I'll get to it my stepmom worked at the international school and so my parents thought it was a good idea at the time to send me to this international school so that I would have better opportunities for higher education and so at that point I basically did my high schooling at the international school in Nepal So one important maybe life moment to mention is as I talk about my parents kind of building these new systems and structures in Nepal, my mom passed away actually when I was only 10. And that was a big moment in my family's life because up until then, we had a really unique family structure. My mom's side of the family, four generations of us lived under the same roof. So it was all the way from me up until my great-grandmother. And this was the Iranian side. They all came to Nepal because they identified as members of the Baha'i faith and they were heavily persecuted in Iran. So as they were thinking about where to move, it made sense to come and join my mom in Nepal. So there was this Iranian side of the family. And then, you know, of course, the Nepali side with my dad and his extended family all in Nepal. I know that part of your show is about these challenges and that really formulate who we are. When my mom passed away, that whole family structure changed. My grandmother and my great grandmother left to go live with my uncle in South Africa. And that changed our family in some ways, too, because suddenly we went from being this big kind of extended family situation to my father being a single father and my brother and I. In retrospect, I can see what a tough moment that was. It was a real moment of loss for our family. And still, I give my father so much credit for somehow kind of pulling everything together and my extended Nepali family there came through for my brother and I in such a solid way that I think even though we went through this loss and change and so much, it really made us not feel a lack of love at any one point. And I feel like that was really momentous and allowed us to just continue moving on along these trajectories that we were on. How much of your mother's passing away affected you and her mission and how much her focus on education would apply to your life path? I don't know that as I was going into the field of education, I really intentionally thought about that. But now that I think back, I think it was a but it had a huge impact. And it's even before my mother. My grandmother was a school teacher, teacher in Iran, you know, and taught under, you know, some constrained circumstances. Now that I think about it, I think so much of my decision to go into education was about extending that legacy. Were you a good student in middle school and high school before choosing the university you went to? A good student, did you say? <laughs> It's so funny because I very much lived up to the female stereotype where I really struggled with math. (laughs) Math was a big struggle for me in many years of schooling. But 
I do feel like in terms of motivation for learning and so on, I was definitely very motivated. Yeah, I think good student is debatable. My brother was an excellent student. So in some ways, I feel like it, I would never live up to that, but certainly always had that motivation to learn. <laughs> and where did you ultimately decide to go to university? My college exploration was very different than what I see here with those kids who come from more privileged backgrounds, which is to kind of have your slate of potential colleges and then to say, oh, we'll go visit and we'll see what it's like. Mine was more, okay, you know, we've heard of these colleges. People gave their suggestions based on what they knew. We had friends from the U.S. who were giving some advice. But one huge determining factor for my family was scholarship. It was very clear to my brother and I from the time we were <laughs> kind of exploring the possibilities of higher education that if we wanted to pursue higher ed, we had to get scholarships because my dad wouldn't be able to kind of uh, support us through that. One of those schools was Mount Holyoke College, the oldest women's college in the U.S., one of the seven sisters kind of of this Ivy League and also known for supporting international students. So I applied to Mount Holyoke. They came back with a big scholarship package. And so the choice was clear at that point that that's where I'd go. Did you know what you wanted to focus on when you're there? I didn't. I left Nepal knowing that I wanted to do something in development studies. And when I thought about that, I thought about it more from the perspective of what my dad was doing in terms of working towards social change, but at the grassroots. I also grew up during the development era in Nepal. You know, it was in the 70s and 80s. There was a lot of foreign aid coming into the country. And so I, I was able to see what the World Bank and IMF and these multinational banks were doing in the development field and kind of comparing that with what my dad was doing at the grassroots. And so I went in with all these curiosities and questions about what model really works, like what is development, like with curiosities about development and social change, but also very much committed to going back and contributing to that in some way. But then as I thought about more about social change, I took a class at Mount Holyoke that really explored this connection between education and social change. And that was it for me. I was like, okay, yes, this is the connection that I really want to learn about is why is education so deterministically connected to this idea of development and change and transformation. It was kind of the perfect connection between my mom's side of the family and the investment in education and the commitment to education and then my dad's work in development. Did you want to go back to Nepal with this education and apply that to the higher institutions of education in Nepal? Or what did you want to do with this degree? At the moment, I was not at all thinking that I'd be in higher education. I was thinking more that I'd work with either a UN organization or community organizations at the grassroots or start my own organization along the lines of women's empowerment or women's education and something like that. So it was, a, you know, 18-year-old going to college <laughs> with big dreams. So that's essentially how I started. At Mount Holyoke, I was able to explore these interests more when I think about my experience at Mount Holyoke, is that that institution was very much built for to kind of foster women's leadership, you know? And I think I went from a co-ed high school to this college, and at the time, I remember, it was a little bit of a shock to the system, you know? It's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> but now that I look back, there was something that happened there. There was a comfort. You could be vulnerable. You could be just yourself in so many ways and really focus on your interests and what matters most to you. That I really appreciate now in, in retrospect and realize that the faculty members that I had the pleasure of working with all kind of had this charge of developing women leaders essentially in their classes. And so that came out of Mount Holyoke with a double major in psychology and education and a minor in development studies. 
And so how did you choose to pursue a PhD at UC Berkeley? Go Bears. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it seems like you had the choice of going back home and applying that right away. What made you or what encouraged you to continue along the educational path? Yeah, that's a great question. Thinking about some of the failures um, <laughs> in my life, that there was a critical moment when I was a senior in college when all my friends were interviewing with these financial organizations and trying to go for these consultancies. And there's a moment when I thought, maybe that's what I need to do. And, you know, all the education is all good and fine, but maybe a few years of experience working in the corporate world is the thing to do. I even remember going to Boston and interviewing with an advertising firm, completely not prepared. My heart wasn't in it at all. And one of the questions was, what's an example of an ad that you think is really terrible? And, you know, how would you think of making it better? And I, at the time, I gave an example. I came out, I was like, oh, that interview went pretty well. Shared kind of what I had told them with my friends. And immediately one of them said, you know that they're the firm that did that oh, <laughs> like produce that oh. ad right and I was like nailed it you got it <laughs> clearly did not get a job with them and came out of it just realizing gosh it's so far from who I am and what I want to do and so that exploring and experimenting was matched with this growing curiosity for me about delving more into education and there was another thing, which was, you know, I always intended to go back to Nepal and work. And there was something in me that made it very clear to me that if I were a professional going back to Nepal and working, that I would need higher education in order to have some validity in the Nepali context for people to listen, that would need to be the case. Did you think about getting a PhD somewhere else or even a master's anywhere I else? Or did, did you just say... UC Berkeley or bust? I did. I was this poor student. I didn't have a lot of money. And I remember at the time thinking, okay, I can afford to apply to the top four schools in education at the time. And if I get in, fine. And if I don't, then that's a sign. And I just go back to Nepal. So I applied to four schools two on the East Coast, two on the West Coast. <laughs> and I was fortunate enough to get into all of them. But <laughs> I think the East Coast ones immediately I nixed because I couldn't imagine going through another East Coast winter after four years of being in Western Massachusetts and trudging through the snow. And my first winter there was the worst blizzard since 1960s or whatever. I think I was traumatized by the winters. And at the time, my brother was on the West Coast. So I said, you know, those two, I'm going to let go and I'll come and decide between these two West Coast schools. And when I visited, there was just something about the people I met at Berkeley that sealed the deal for me. I thought, okay, if I'm going to spend five years here pursuing this PhD, then this will be the place. Did it take you five years to complete the program? It did. So I did an MA and PhD at UC Berkeley. And believe it or not, was one of two people in my cohort to finish the earliest. So it was five years that were so rich and so full of learning and so uplifting and enlightening. And a really tough five years of kind of going through this process of self-doubt too. I remember the first year and the second year just being in these heavily theoretical classes where I thought, you know, this is the exactly the kind of thing I want to be doing and it's so interesting, but also felt like this was taking me so far away from where I actually wanted to be, which was really working with people and at the grassroots and so on, and very much felt like I was in this ivory tower in the company of people who could speak so well and were so articulate and could think in such amazing ways and participate. And here I was coming from an educational tradition in Nepal where I wasn't necessarily encouraged to speak up or share my thoughts. You know, we memorized a lot and we took a lot of tests and there was this balance of kind of always feeling inadequate in some ways in these classes. And God, I'm not smart enough to be with these people. 
And at the same time, also like, what am I doing? Like I'm here talking conceptually and theoretically and we're so far removed from reality. And so I have to say that the first and second year, I did think, okay, maybe I just get the masters and leave, you know, because I don't know that this is what I want to do. It just seems so far removed from the realities I want to be addressing right now. I think there were two factors that kept me there. One was this amazing cohort I had. There were eight of us that started together and it was a support group. We helped each other through the work. It was wonderful. And even a smaller subset of that we realized that we were all feeling the same way. We were all committed to our communities or to change efforts at the level of people. And for some, it was at the level of the classroom because they had been classroom teachers. And now we're like, whoa, we're talking about all this stuff. But what's the actual application of this knowledge look like? And so we came across this research method that was called participatory research. What it talked about was the need to connect theory and practice and also the need to really engage with the people that we study, the need to really think about how to do research too in a way that's democratic, in a way that is mindful of bringing people's voices into uh, this process of generating new knowledge. And so when we learned about that, that was really for us such a motivating factor and said, okay, that's it. We want to start a research center. That's a center for participatory research. We want to make sure that this type of work is actually you know, acknowledged at UC Berkeley, where it wasn't at the time. And we just set out on this mission, all of us doing research that had participatory research dimensions to it. We started a research center. We got funding from the Irvine Foundation at the time, a quarter of a million dollars, which at the time was like a huge victory. So you eventually got your PhD. So I got my PhD at UC Berkeley. It was interesting because in that final year was when I met my now husband. And I distinctly remember us wedding planning while I was finishing the last bits of my dissertation, doing all the revisions and so on. So it was this interesting thing where, you know, I was finishing one phase of my life, starting a whole nother exciting phase. <laughs> and at the time, you know, I didn't have any time to focus on the wedding planning. So my husband really took on that role of being the wedding planner. And like we'd show up at, you know, different venues to check him out. And he was the one with the binder and taking I'm notes. I'm not surprised. And so he's, he's a very organized just, human being. <laughs> just lagging along saying yes or no. So he derailed your plans to go back home to Nepal. He completely <laughs> derailed my plans. Yes. <laughs> and so what did you decide to do after graduating Berkeley? It was not an easy decision. We had a lot of discussions about what this would mean. And he was just starting off his career. So it was important for me to support him and he's in technology so it made sense to be here and to pursue his career right here especially at that time when the whole boom was starting and so yeah we decided that I would look for opportunities here if even if it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do to support his career for a few years and that we would kind of reassess this uh, option of moving to Nepal. And so we did. I was, at the time, I had the opportunity to work part-time here at USF I, while I was a graduate student at UC Berkeley. So I already was getting to know the School of Education at USF. And once we got married, one of the colleagues here said, oh, you know, we're going to be opening a position here. We need someone to bring in more of an international dimension to the work that we already do. And I think your work would be great. So just keep a lookout. And so when this position opened up, of course, I applied. And what was the position? Was it to be a teacher? Yes, it was a tenure track position as assistant professor in international and multicultural education. The position just seemed perfect for the type of work I had been doing. For me, I wasn't necessarily looking to go into higher ed. So I thought, oh, okay, I can do this for a year or two until we decide what we're doing with our lives, and then it'll be fine. So, <laughs> <laughs> so 
So I applied. Things moved quickly. I was one of the finalists, and then I was offered the job. And what year was that? All this was happening in 2004-2005, and so I started here fall of 2005 in the full-time role. Yeah, I was already working here before that. So then 12 or 13 years later, you you are now the dean yes. of the School of Education, <laughs> still not in Nepal. For those that are listening, can you walk through the structure of education in terms of role? So dean is certainly at the top of the, the school, but what is the kind of titles leading up to that for those sure. unfamiliar? Sure. So in full-time faculty positions, the structure is such that you are assistant professor for about six years. And this is considered a probationary period for faculty. So this is the time when you're teaching your classes, publishing, serving the school and the university, and essentially trying to meet the requirements necessary for the university then to be able to assess whether or not you should be here full-time past this probationary period. And that's where what we call tenure. So six years of kind of proving yourself, and then in the sixth year, you apply for tenure. It's a very rigorous process. You go through multiple layers of reviews, both outside the university, within the university, and then with the university leadership. And then at that point, you are able to know whether or not they're actually promoting and giving you tenure, or it's actually quite clear the boundaries because you either get tenure and you're promoted and you get to stay or you actually lose your job. So it's you're either in (laughs) or out. (laughs) So then once you get tenure and that's approved, is one person still an assistant professor or you then professor? You, You then become associate professor. And then in the next few years, about four years after your 10th year at the university, you can apply to be a full professor. Okay. And so the markers for that are similar. You you need to demonstrate leadership in your field at the university. You need to continue publishing and have an active research agenda. The vetting process is similar. This time, the stakes aren't as high because you get to still keep your job, you're even if tenure, you're not promoted. That's approved. <laughs> but yeah, and then being full professor is kind of at the top of the professor line. Is that specific to USF in the terms of kind of tenure from assistant associate to full professor? Or is that generally the average that's, of most? generally how it is in higher ed in academia yep and so once you're so you, you certainly passed that you're full professor and that took about 10 years what did you do after that while i was associate professor we had a change in leadership here at the school we got a new dean we were all very excited he came from chicago from a different institution and his philosophy and his research was very much in line with the school's mission and where we wanted to go. So it was a very exciting time. When he joined the school, I was the department chair for international and multicultural education as a faculty member. And early on when he joined, he approached me and said, you know, I've kind of heard you speak in meetings. I'm familiar with your work. And, you know, I'd like to invite you to consider being an associate dean in the dean's office and you'd be a part of my leadership team. And my immediate response was, no way. (laughs) Like, who wants to be in administration, you know, and you can have the flexibility of faculty life and have the ability to do research and to teach and to interface with students and have this amazing work of creation really in the classroom to go from that to this mundane administrative work. So I said no. And then I was approached again, and I think once I started to really understand his vision for the school, I thought, okay, I can either sit here and complain as a faculty member all these years, all these discontents with the system and the process and the protocols, or I can maybe this is the chance to try my hand at institutional change and thinking, you know, like, what would it be like to really think about systemic changes? So I went for it and was associate dean for three years. And in that third year, I decided three years was a good run and made some changes that I had really hoped to make, especially in creating systems for student scholarships and for students to get 
support while they were here, working with faculty, with departments and their revisioning processes. And so it just felt like it was the right time to now think about going back to faculty. And so I approached the dean at the time and said that I was ready to go back to faculty. I'd, I would take my sabbatical the following year and then just join the faculty in the international and multicultural education department again. And going back to faculty means going back to teaching. Going back to students. teaching, exactly. Teaching and research. So the plans were made. And a month after those plans were made, the Dean at the time decided that he was leaving in a very unexpected turn of events. I think my initial reaction was, what are we going to do? And <laughs> at the same time, like, I've made my plans, so <laughs> the school's just going to have to figure this one out. And as things happened and as he actually left the university, I was starting to get little visits here and there from colleagues who were like, you know, it'd be great if you would just serve as interim dean and you know the school and you know us and it'd be, you know, it'd be a pity to have someone new come and again kind of do things differently and we need the stability. And so when the provost of the university, essentially my boss approached me and said, you know, we'd like you to be the interim, I did the same thing, which was to say, okay, fine, I'll be interim until the end of this academic year, but I've already made plans. And so that's all I'll do. And that was the agreement. <laughs> <laughs> and yet here you are as dean. How did that and end here up? I am, How did still that end here. So I served as the interim dean, and I think it was that spring. It really wasn't a lot of time. It was one semester where the search process began for the new dean. There was a search firm that was working with the community here to determine what it is they wanted in their new dean. You know, the process was underway, and I wasn't at all thinking that I would throw my hat in the ring, as they say. Is it you just weren't interested? You didn't want the responsibility? You didn't want to be part of the administration and to go back to faculty? Or why didn't you ever personally want to pursue it? It's a really good question. I think a few things. One is I was never aspiring to be an associate dean or an interim dean or a dean. <laughs> it was never a part of my career aspirations or even thinking that I might have something to offer in those areas. I, I really was so being an educator was such a huge part of my identity. And so deciding to go back to faculty just at the time seemed like such the right decision. And so I think that was a huge part of it. And at the same time, I think I wasn't sure what the school wanted. There was a lot of excitement about this previous dean and his scholarship. He was very much outward facing and in many ways this rising star in many different avenues in our field. And I didn't have those same aspirations, you know. <laughs> I came into administration to serve the school and in my own way was out there in research communities and made my presence in spaces where I felt were really important for me to contribute to. So it was just a different way of being. So then they do the search process. Did you throw your name in the ring or did someone volunteer your name for you as they did the, the search with other candidates externally? There was a lot of encouragement. Let's put it that way. A lot of many, many colleagues coming up and saying, you know, just do it. You don't have to make a decision until the end. But at least if you're in the running, it'll make us feel good. And, and then I started consulting quite heavily with my own family. Should I even do this? It's such an awkward thing to go through a search process with your own constituents, especially when you're interim dean. My family too was very supportive. And I've always been a very spiritually grounded person. So I also always believe that there's a bigger plan for all of us. And I couldn't ignore those things that were happening at the time because I thought, well, I was trying to go in this direction. And then now suddenly I'm being thrown in this other direction. So what is what does this mean? And maybe it's not all a coincidence. Like maybe there's a reason why all of this is happening. Our previous dean decided to leave the same week that Donald Trump was elected. And so 
then I started thinking, well, maybe it is timely that a female dean rise up. There was so much just about my candidacy, I think, that was in opposition, maybe, or in contradiction to so much of this hate rhetoric and so on that was just starting to rise. I was announced dean actually in June. So things moved really fast. I was interviewing with the school around March, April, and then was offered the position in June. My family and I had tickets to go to Nepal, I think, (laughs) mid-June to visit my family. And the day I was leaving for Nepal in the evening, in the morning, I signed the contract and personally walked it up to the provost's office and got on the plane. Incredible. (laughs) So that's how it all unfolded. It was really interesting because I thought, okay, now I'm going to go to Nepal and I'm going to forget all about this. Because for me too, it had been this process of, oh my gosh, how did all of this happen? And going through the search process while at the same time trying to create some stability in the school, all of that. And I went to Nepal and news had already gotten out just as I was getting there. And the most beautiful thing I think that happened then as I was trying to escape kind of all of this was that there was such a collective celebration of the fact that a Nepali had been appointed dean that it was probably one of the most affirming things I've experienced in my life. This sharing of joy and a sharing of the accomplishment. And I think at that moment, I mean, I've always had this orientation that it's never just about me. But at that moment, I really felt like, wow, this kind of thing is not a half the time not about us as individuals it's connected to such a larger community and for the Nepali community to share in that sense of accomplish was actually so humbling and affirming that's incredible I think most people who would get to that point would actually say no I did it hey kudos (laughs) to me and meanwhile I think you take a a broader view and saying, hey, actually, this is the collective win for women, for the country, for people of color, which is incredible that you think that way. What was it like for your family to receive you home? What did your dad think? I think for my dad, there was a lot of pride. I don't know. These were never my aspirations. So I think everyone that knew me was like, really? What? (laughs) Even your brother. Your brother's like, wait a minute. What happened? You're going to be the dean? So all of that keeps it so real, you know, when people are like, wow, never thought you'd go for it. But I think for my dad, too, it was like coming full circle, you know, especially thinking about all the years of him enduring the single fatherhood and really going through a lot of struggles to make sure that we were okay, then sending us off to get an education and all of that and kind of coming full circle, I think for him was uh, a big moment of pride. Did you consult with him along the way, other than your husband and your kids, about that process? Did he have any input? I did. I did. With everyone, I said, I wasn't looking for this, but here it is. What do you think? Am I crazy? And for my dad, I think at the time it was tough because we had decided that during my sabbatical, we would go to Nepal for a year. And so we had already started looking at school options for the kids for a year. And and so I think my dad was really excited about that. And he knew that taking this position meant giving that up. But beyond that, He was also very supportive. He said, you know, you should definitely go for this. And the fact that you have support will make all the difference. So how long were you in Nepal for after you signed the acceptance letter? Okay. Yes, we were there for a month. It was wonderful. It was really beautiful. You know, family members inviting us, honoring the fact that this had happened. And these were all family members that were there for me in the most difficult times. You know, my aunts, my dad's sisters specifically, who if my dad had to travel, I would stay with them for weeks sometimes. And these were the people whose kind of affirmation I actually realized I needed. Those are the people who really counted. And so it was it was beautiful. How yeah. older were your kids at that time? Let's see. Alia's 12 now. So she was 11. She had just turned 11 and Ayana had just, he was eight. And did they 
understand the magnitude of your role and what you just got promoted to? I remember having a specific conversation with them where I said, look, if I am to take the dean's position, I'm not going to have a lot of time with you guys. So I, I need you to be okay with that, to realize that it doesn't mean that I don't want to spend time, but the job will just be a lot more demanding. And both of them at the time were like, you should definitely do this. You know? <laughs> Those yeah. moments when like it's, pulls at your heartstrings. I don't think any of us really knew what it meant, (laughs) to be honest, and I don't know that they did either. But I think when we went to Nepal and there was this celebration and acknowledgement, what was really powerful was for them to see how a community can really come together. Also powerful to see my identity in that space, because they don't know me in the Nepali context. They know me in this context. And then to see like how important that was to me, I think was beautiful for them oh, as well. Oh, that's incredible. To see their mom celebrated in such a grand fashion has to be so exactly. unforgettable. Exactly. That was beautiful. So then that was a full month in Nepal. Then you had a then I Come came back to and just it was full immersion into the reality of actually like being dean. So what were your first priorities or how did you want to affect change not being interim dean or associate dean, but now full dean? I knew one thing from being associate dean, which was that this community would need to take the time to really think about what we wanted to do next. So all of last year, I was committed to meeting with people. We had two big retreats, one all day with faculty, one all day with staff, town halls with students, then smaller meetings with faculty, smaller meetings with staff, smaller meetings with students. I knew I had to do that because people had so much to get off their chests. There was a lot of discontent. There were also a lot of hopes and desires and listening to that had to be a full year-long project. So that's what it was. And I actually didn't come in saying, okay, we're going to do this and that and the other because I named some of the issues that we had to work on immediately and urgently, but also said we're going to be thoughtful about where we move. And so by the end of last year was when came up with some of the major priorities for the school, as I'd heard from all the constituents. And actually, that big sheet of paper that you see behind you was like the initial (laughs) draft of it. That has now turned into something a little bit more concrete. No, I like um, this version better. It's, it's but more real. I think at the at the essence of this is thinking about the institution in this way that we need to take care of our people, that there has to be a strong sense of community as a collective and that the institution itself or the administration then has specific responsibilities and accountabilities too. So how I explain this to the school the model, is to think about the role of the individual, the role of the collective, and then the role of the institution in advancing a plan. So in the case of the School of Education, we have this vision for where we need to go, what we need to do to kind of take the school to the next level. But the individual has responsibilities kind of based on our each of our job descriptions. You know, you've come to teach such and such class, I've been appointed to do such and such thing. And so each individual has their mandate in some ways. But we also have all these collectives. We have offices, we have departments where people really need to come together and to have a unified vision to be able to engage in in meaningful and productive conversation, to map out what it is we need to be doing. And then the third is the institution, or in this case, the administration. And if all three can't work together in a productive way, we can't advance our mission. Because individuals can be doing excellent work, (laughs) but if the administration is, you know, oblivious to it or doesn't know how to support them, there's going to be cause for discontent. And so the priority this year, I kind of presented it to the full school at the beginning of the year and said, these are our priorities in terms of what we need to do, but the how we need to do it is equally important. And the how has to do with individuals, collectives, 
and the institution, recognizing our roles in it, and then advancing this together. That's incredible. I love the process that you're applying to make it better, but dissecting it by those categories. Is that why you spent a full year talking individually to all the staff members? Yes. The listening was really important because I think the only way that these three protagonists can work together is if there's buy-in to the vision. And if the vision and the strategic priorities don't emerge from the community, there's not going to be (laughs) buy-in. So I think it was important to take the time to make sure that what was emerging was really coming from people sharing their concerns, their hopes, their desires. How long is one a dean for? Is it a two, three, four-year stint? Some days I wish it was a two-year stint, (laughs) but it's actually a five-year term. So it's been a little over a year into the term. What are your goals for at the end of your dean term that you want to achieve and that you want to be kind of known for within that legacy that you were dean? That's a really great question. One of the reasons that I am now really excited to be in higher ed, even though that wasn't the plan, even when I was pursuing my PhD, is this aspect of higher ed that has to do with the generation of new knowledge. Oftentimes we call this research, but I think even the word research has become really limiting because at the end of the day, it's really about generating new knowledge that can move us forward. So in education, it's about generating new knowledge that helps us think about new policies, new practices. What are some things that can help us move us forward as a field? So it's very specific to various disciplines, but I think at the level of just thinking about the significance of the generation of new knowledge, we need the generation of new knowledge to advance us even as a civilization because the status quo will take hold as it has in many different areas. And, and we continue to just sit with these habits of thought that have existed in a long time. So this aspect of higher education is huge where we raise consciousness where we then share tools with students to, so that they can then go out and seek, so they can engage in inquiry. They can ask questions based on what, what they see in society and schools and communities and then say, I want to utilize the best tools to answer these questions and then to go out there and see what emerges. So that part of it is really important to me. And at USF, the School of Education, I think is very unique because most of our faculty are here because of our mission, which is to advance justice through education. If you look at our faculty and their research agendas, almost all faculty are doing something that not only kind of pushes our thinking in a specific area, whether it's higher education or K through 12 or preschool or in reading or in bilingual education, but it's also addressing the inequities that have existed in our society. This is where individual faculty members are doing amazing things, but I don't think as an institution we've leveraged this to say the knowledge that's coming out from USF School of Education is unique and distinct and has implications for really advancing society. It has implications for continuing to raise consciousness, for breaking our habits of thought, but also for really then applying this knowledge in ways that will change instruction and curriculum and schools and communities and so on. There's so much to unpack with this conversation and your focus on changing the broader impact for education. I might just get you back on to speak about that. But one thing I'd love to hear your thoughts on related to this is how you feel about education today. I think especially geographically where we're sitting in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley, more and more we hear about engineers and entrepreneurs who almost kind of de-emphasize higher education and focus more on vocational skills and jumping straight into work or the field that they want to dive into. And I think in part because of the costs, you know, the financial costs or the opportunity costs. 
How do you feel about that? You know, and what do you think the role of higher education will be for, you know, our kids a couple of decades from now? I think you're right. It would be a completely a whole nother conversation where I would love to delve into that. But I think in a nutshell, I think that's true for specific skills oriented things. There's so many options now. You can go and get trained in, you know, specific things. You can do it online. There's just so much out there policies around higher education and the cost of higher education is prohibitive now. And so it makes complete sense that people would kind of move towards options that are less costly, that are more accessible, that are easier to kind of engage with. So that makes the current trend understandable. But I also think that there is a dimension of higher ed that is about continuing to be like the, the purpose of education, as I see it, which is to com- continue to build engaged citizens as well, right? We are training individuals who can engage with their reality on a deeper level, that can imagine alternatives, that can advance their fields, that can advance thinking in their fields. And I feel like that level of engagement that needs to happen is doesn't come from just building a skill. It really comes from engaging with people who are thinking along those lines. I think of our students and how much they gain from just engaging with a faculty member who has expertise in a specific field in a classroom where they're engaged in rich discussion, engaged in rich dialogue, and they're getting skills (laughs) necessary then to be able to do that work by themselves. I don't think there's a replacement for that. So I think the charge is not so much to kind of move towards these other options. I think that's great. But I think what we need to figure out is how to make higher education more accessible. The rising cost is very prohibitive for many people. And and so there's that dimension of it. There's also like a privatization of education. There's so many for-profit institutions now of higher education too, which are high cost and are really about creating skilled workers to enter the workforce, which really misses so much about higher ed that is about consciousness raising. That's about a conceptual shift. And I think higher ed has so much to offer in that these conceptual shifts that are also necessary for us to advance as as a humankind in general. Well, I love your work when you were associate dean focusing on creating scholarships. Going back to your comment about dimension, I'm so curious to get your thoughts on what you think is different being a female, being a person of color, being that type of background for the university? Like how much does that affect your vision, do you think? For me, quite a bit. And it's, you know, I think these positions are made for people to kind of come in and just follow the protocol. And I can see how that would happen. I mean, there are moments where I have to kind of wake myself up too and kind of snap at my <laughs> snap myself out of these moments where I I think I start thinking very much in ways that I'm expected to think in. Well it's status quo. It's easier to go with what historical process or routine was. Exactly. And that's really the expectation, you know, that you fulfill kind of these certain requirements that come with the job. For me it's always been so much more, you know, and I, I really think that being different in these roles is equally important. So what I mean by that is I've always been attracted to this phrase called transformative resistance. And I think that's about giving equal weight to kind of doing things differently and really thinking about like, how am I as a woman or as a person of color or as an immigrant or as whatever, really kind of being more mindful of existing traps or existing obstacles in these structures, these institutions, but also then mindfully saying, you know, I choose not to do A, B, and C the way it's been done because I want things to be different. So it's both like creating new ways, but also choosing to not do some of the things that are expected. For me, there is a need to really think about 
that like consciously all the time because otherwise what's the point really <laughs> in some ways one thing i remember people saying to me when i was in this dean search process was several people came up and said but you're so nice <laughs> like are you really going to be able to make the tough decisions and aside from being like slightly offended by that <laughs> comment i was like yeah like why can't you be nice and make tough right. decisions you like seem why nice, can't but very you disciplined. be kind and right. Right. <laughs> engage in really difficult decisions like terminating someone's employment they're just these parts of who i am that many people would think gosh that's not what a dean would do or that's not how a dean should be or you know so on yes. i very much embrace those parts of it. i i think having integrity and being authentic is also important and in doing so we're challenging a lot of assumptions about what these positions need to look like and who needs to be filling them well it's fascinating to see because you're the first female dean here at the university of san francisco and and it'll be really great to see how that applies not only to how you view the historic programs and the agendas put in place by your male predecessors but also how you'll enhance that with your unique viewpoint of being female whether it's nice or not okay but i have a couple more things i'd love our listeners to hear from you and before i forget and certainly it's one of my favorites but can you share a few more of your failures that had impacted you along the way and really during your professional career sure i i think i shared a few little failures along the way <laughs> i often think of some of my worst kind of quote failures or challenges were in the classroom as a faculty member where generally students were happy to be in the classes and really thinking about it and i would go in having prepared like a full class on some really elevated topic and and have all these ideas for how the students would engage in it and so on and they would not at all <laughs> respond or or just be like that doesn't make sense or completely feel like they were at odds with, with what I was doing. I also remember after going through the tenure process which was really grueling, especially having had two children too in that tenure track process and really thinking what does this mean am I not going to do this successfully and full of self-doubt through that whole process. I submitted everything in September when everything was due. I went to teach a class and I literally could not formulate words. I couldn't think. I was so exhausted. <laughs> and I remember like standing in front of the class and saying, "I have to end class early today. I'm so sorry. I can't do this." And the students were completely baffled. They're like, "What's wrong with her?" You know, and I just walked out feeling like a complete failure. You know, this feeling like I'm being assessed on all these things and I just couldn't even explain one concept that I've been explaining for the past 6 years. And so, I think especially related to my teaching and and maybe research too where I've presented at a conference where people were like that really doesn't make sense or you submit a paper to be published which you think is your, you know, life's work and you get the reviewers saying, "Sorry, it's been rejected. We're not going to publish it." I mean, these moments where especially as a professional, I think I'm not good enough or I I clearly don't have the right tools for this. Well, thank you for sharing that. What or who inspires you? You know, I've always said my father is a big inspiration in my life. It goes mostly to his general orientation towards his work. He's been such a leader in the field of communications and mass media, but he's so understated. He practices this very refreshing humility that I try to exude because I think it gives his work so much more importance that he's really not doing this for himself. I can't imagine how hard it must have been for him to lose the love of his life and then to just step it up, especially in a society that's so patriarchal cuz I think probably most people expect him to just get remarried and and move on with their life and he was so committed to my brother and I and really sacrificed his own I think happiness for 
many years before he even thought about himself again. Keeping all of that in mind and, and seeing his commitment to his country, his people, his kids, his family has been such a huge source of inspiration for me. Well, the apple does not fall far from the tree because you are extremely humbled. And certainly as we were interviewing, I listed all your accolades and you were so uncomfortable with it. I would like to kind of toot your horn because you won't do it. But can you talk about the government of Nepal reaching out to you and saying, can you come back and speak to in our educational processes and systems? Sure. Thank you. (laughs) Yes, it's so interesting because earlier when I was telling you about my thinking as an undergrad that I had to get this degree in order to go back and have a voice, I actually never thought about this opportunity now in front of me and that connection, you know. But the government of Nepal is basically going through a process of really thinking about higher education in Nepal, which has been a huge struggle There's one government-led university and then the rest of public university and then a ton of private institutions with very little accountability or any kind of accrediting kind of process. And so the government wants to do this assessment of higher ed, but also to draw on people from South Asia, so all of South Asia, to come and really engage for two days on policy and practice in higher education. And they invited me to keynote the whole thing and to be the only invited speaker. (laughs) And so, so incredible. in a few weeks, I'm going to do that. And what was even more fascinating is I got a draft of the invitation and realized that it's all men and myself. I was thinking, gosh, like that dream of going back to Nepal and in some ways contributing is so has been so difficult, even though I tried to do that with my research when I was doing my dissertation and even in following years as a professional. But now it feels like there are new ways in which I'm able to do that. Incredible. Well, I am grateful to have you in the Bay Area still, and I'm sure the University of San Francisco is very appreciative of your efforts as well. There's a saying that I've always loved, and I think it's from J.D. Salinger, but it's where you comment on someone and you say you are a gentleman and a scholar. And I think the female equivalent is something like, you know, you're a learned lady, but I really don't like the sound of that. So I'll just modify it and say that you are a true scholar and a gentlewoman. And I really greatly appreciate you sharing your story. I'm very, very inspired by your selfless goal of bringing higher education to the forefront of people's attention and really can't thank you enough for joining us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. And I think it's wonderful that you're doing this to uplift and inspire everyone with this show. Thank you so much. 